Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello everyone and welcome to another very special Manners Masterclass, the interview series with exclusive content for our Patreon and Apple subscribers. In this episode, I am joined by former Test off-spinner Gavin Robertson. Gavin was plucked from Sydney grade cricket in 1998 to tour India and take on Sachin Tendulkar and his teammates in their own backyard. In this interview, Gavin generously shares his stories of ups and downs in another interview I'm very proud to share with you. Here I am with Baggy Green number 375, Gavin Robinson, also the drummer from Six and Out. Gavin, welcome. How are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks so much for coming on Men as Masterclass. I think you've got an amazing story, basically, you know, plucked from grade cricket to taking on Tendulkar in his backyard. It's such a whirlwind story. So, so glad you can come in and um, share it with me. I was saying before we started that I was a, a big fan of the New South Wales Blues in the, the early 90s. They were like my heroes. What was it like coming up in that environment? You know, such a good team full of stars. I think it was, a, it was an environment about you either did four units of winning, not two unit veg of winning like you would do at school, you basically had to have an attitude of winning. You know, I, I, no, I'm not being mean to Tasmania, but I, I spent when Greg Matthews was dropped and he was, I went to Tassie for two years and, and it was, it was, let's see how we go sort of thing. But 
there was a lot of pressure on you as a New South Welshman because once you were put into the side, there wasn't a, a hope that you'd go okay. It was you either do well or out the door. And, and, and that's okay. I mean, it's, I think realistically, if you're going to play a professional sport, you really want to live by that framework because otherwise you float around for a few years wondering and searching and that's cool, but you've got to survive that, that time. So I, I, the, the blues also really in, in the late eighties, you know, the Mike Whitney, Jeff Lawson, Greg Matthews, Mark Taylor, Steve Wall, Mark War era that it was, let's not see if we're going to win on the fourth day. Let's get aggressive. Let's not score and be happy with 220 runs in the day. Let's get to 300. It was a very different game then, and it graduated then. Oh, sorry. And it's look where it's gone to now. But um, I think aggression is the primary thing for the Blues. What a great education, though, you must have had walking into that lineup. And, yeah, it must have been incredible. Any in particular characters that sort of in those early days really helped you out? Oh, I think there was, yeah, I mean, it was a very different era. We used to train, we used to train from 3.30 to about 6.30 and then walk out the front. We'd have about a 10-minute break and then we'd be out the front on the SCG for fielding practice. Now, fielding practice, if it went well, went for half an hour. If it didn't go well, it went for an hour. And then we'd finish and it would be inside for a shower. We'd normally have a cold beer and a sausage roll and pie and go home. And that's what our training was. But... In a definitive way, it was bloody hard. Like that, you know, you got nailed. I was only talking to Steve Rickson a while ago. I think I counted on four, four occasions where on my way home to Dundas Valley, Victoria Road, bang. You're just so dehydrated, so crook. Whatever is in the stomach, you're on the side of the road and it's coming out. So that would, <laughs> they were very different days. Um, but you didn't win. There wasn't too it. many beers or no. too many sausage rolls, just the intensity. Yeah, you'd normally have a beer, shower and a beer and, and spend sort of 15, 20 minutes or half an hour with the boys, then you'd go home. But, mate, it was, it was like you were either, you hang in there and get it done or again, find somewhere else to play. I mean, training was the sort of first test of someone's capabilities, even when I was coming up in grade cricket. You know, yeah. they'd really, try and put you through your paces to see if you could handle it when the pressure was on. Well, training was aggressive too. Like, I mean, and uh, someone asked me only a couple of days ago with the Melbourne Cup, um, did you grow up with Mark Waugh and Steve Waugh? And I said, well, yeah, I did. But myself and Mark and Steve, we met when we were 11. But Mark especially, in the nets for the next 30 years, we argued because he wanted to belt you out of the nets. And I wanted to get him out, but it was—it wasn't just a batting session. It was—it was aggression. It was, you know, training wasn't just about having a bit of a bow and having a bit of a hit. It was a mindset where you're—you either become aggressive and understand what you're doing and be be able to enact it when you want to, not hope it goes well. So, they're all the things I think that really make you be able to. You see, New South Wales players in the the eighties and nineties, our shield players can go from shield cricket into test cricket and handle it. And it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm playing test cricket. Am I up to this? If you've been playing shield cricket, you know, I'm not, not rapping or being too overconfident here, but our shield games were extremely difficult games, tough games. Yeah. And they taught you everything you needed. Yeah, so would Mark Wall, um, would he be out in the nets? Because he was never out in the games. Would he ever no. acknowledge a dismissal? Okay, just, uh-huh. just checking. Talking about that jump, actually, I sort of think now the gap between shield cricket and test cricket is more pronounced than it was 20 years ago. There's a much bigger gap. 
Yeah, it's not the players' fault. It's the framework. IPL or, or T20 cricket has taken over the time availability. So the, so your, your rhythm of how your year works has changed so much. So your commitment to a team, uh, that's, that's not there anymore. Your commitment to six teams in the year, you know, I'll play for two or three T20 teams. I'm going to play for my state and I hopefully play for Australia. So your your mind is fractured in a lot of ways. So, And the other thing is, do you get a lot of four-day cricket and the, owning the pressure of four-day cricket? And uh, No, you don't. Do you get the opportunity to be 22 not out and going really well? All of a sudden, two bowlers come on and bowl a great one-hour session and you've gone from 22 to 27 in that hour. And have you been able to endure that part in your mind and handle it and continue on, or do you get frustrated during that hour of lockdown because two bowlers are bowling really well together and make a mistake? And they're all the things you learn from four-day cricket and playing a lot of it. And I don't think that it's not there for the players these days. Yeah, I can't imagine you're a big fan then of the, the format of the summers at the moment where it's a little pocket of shield cricket at the beginning and a little pocket at the end. And Greg Chappell on this show said he thinks it's so hard for young cricketers now to develop mm. because you're constantly changing. I think the easiest way, if I looked at cricket, I, when I started at the GWS Giants 12 years ago, um, I remember speaking to Kevin Sheedy about how the AFL works and a whole range of different things. And one of the things I studied for about six months was American football in the NFL. And, you know, the NFL only have a certain amount of teams and a certain amount of games. They don't flood the system. And what happens then? People are constantly inst- interested. And when you, when you are, as a fan, with a game interested, the game becomes constantly interesting. And uh, my, con- my concern with, say, BBL, for example, is it's a whole bunch of games every day for, let's call it, 70 days. Where, where's your team? How do you become connected to your team? Where's your team coming? You know, do I have anything to look forward to? Because I think the downtime is important for the game because let's say, for example, I was only talking about it the other day, the rugby league season, the AFL season would have their grand final at the MCG. The rugby league would play their grand final the week after. Then the Bathurst 1000 was on. So the V8s would race. And then the one-day cricket system would start. And the domestic competition, New South Wales playing Victoria or Queensland, for example, at North City Oval. Mercantile Mutual, there for many of them. Completely sold out. And the next four weekends, completely sold out. And you were very focused on playing one-day cricket and you did that for about three weeks, moving into one-day cricket and your first Shield game. And then that started to mix and that was still very busy. And then the test season would start. The Shield games would continue on. But I think that that rhythm has been lost and that affects the game. And I think that, you know, let's say it's December and January where it's just every day is a T20 game, a BBL game. Do you definitively become totally in line with your team or is it just I'm a bit lost there's a game on every day and I'll just watch 14 games each now so it's I've lost a couple there's 10 to go that's right I'll watch it if it's on I might be doing something else and what happens is you fracture away from it so it is a very important thing to have the break and that takes me back to American football the NFL the game is incredible the day after or the next two or three days the fans just talk about it and then the next two or three days, all they do is look forward to the next one. It's such a big part of their routine or their rhythm of life. Yeah, I was a big fan of it going to 14 games, the Big Bash, but I just don't think it's worked. I think about 10 games per team would probably be perfect. 
And you're right, then people can keep track of it and you can space them out a bit more and you can debate about it. Well, it's content equals money and um, it's an interesting argument. That's right. Very interesting. Um, yeah. We'll see what That's happens where the NFL the win because yeah, they, they don't go down the content road. They back who they are. Interesting to see what happens in the next TV rights deal, whether they adjust that. Mm. Tell me, going back a bit, you mentioned, you know, playing cricket with the War Brothers as a kid. Where, where, where did your love of cricket come from? Who engendered that in you? Oh, look, I didn't love cricket. I loved soccer. Uh, I was completely addicted to it. And then um, a bunch of mates of mine at Dundas who probably should have been at school and we got, we got a little bit of trouble. You know, I won't tell anyone if you guys sign up and play for the Dundas team. And so we all, seven of us said, yeah, we'll play cricket. Thought we'd play, give it a go anyway because we used to play at lunchtime at school. But And uh, next minute it just all happened. I literally had no idea. I knew how to bowl and that was about it. Did the game grab you early on? I actually took seven stroke four in my first game. I didn't know that was seven for four. And uh, <laughs> What a bad start. Yeah, I remember my the, the then coach, Bill Madden, and my dad were like, very happy. And honestly, within two weeks, all of a sudden I got home on Tuesday and Bill Madden was at my house. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he picked me up on the back of a, a CB250 Honda and drive me to the Nets and I'd be in the Nets all afternoon. And that's really where it started. That's where all of a sudden I got going. And within 12 months, I was going from little club cricketer to then making the New South Wales primary schools team. And that's where I met Mark and Steve Waugh. Uh, mind you, I, I didn't like these two twins from the Liverpool team from Bankstown that everyone, is 11, all the 11 and 12-year-olds were just talking about these two twins. Well, I didn't really. I'm from that old school background, Australia culture. Not big on how people talk about heroes and how people are great. Well, let's get stuck into them. And it didn't work. I learned pretty quickly that the war boys were pretty good and we got picked in the state squad together and became mates ever since. Yeah, wow, what a story. And, and I know you were picked in the Australian, what, under-19 side? Yeah. Is, is that about when cricket started to become a bit more serious for you when you... Oh, no, no. It, it literally, after what I just explained to you, with once I learned cricket, I started cricket and did well immediately, and all of a sudden, well, Bill Madden started a coaching clinic inside at a, 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 a cow shed at Castle Hill Showgrounds, and that only took about three or four months. And then we started to train every, pretty much... Most nights a week, so so it got very serious very quickly. And you know, soccer. I still played soccer in the in the in the winter, but cricket just overtook it. And from twelve, I was dedicated to cricket. Basically, I still played soccer, but and I mean, I went into first grade sixteen and a half, seventeen. So all of a sudden, again, what club at Balmain? Ian Davis, who played for Australia, just picked me from. Basically, I was in fourth grade, played one game in seconds, and straight into first grade, which was a was a pretty heavy climb but again i like the old days you either learn to take it on or out you go and i don't mind that no and great cricket was pretty tough then there was no you know no thoughts about your mental health or anything like that it was sink or swim Mm. wasn't it full of shield players and test players at least five to seven eight games a year so you had a lot of experience you were coming up against i think my second game i played len pasco the fourth game i played against jeff lawson and I've got no problems admitting that, you know, at 16 and a half, 17, if they had have made nappies that could have fitted me, I would have worn them because I was absolutely crapping myself, thinking I'm going to have to go and face these blokes. I hadn't faced anyone as quick as that. So, yeah, there was interesting times. Yeah, reminds me of when I had to face Brett Lee at the Nets, turned up to Mossman a bit early and 
was just being a bowling and I was not happy. I wish I'd had nappies that day. Um, <laughs> so, you, you know, you, you, um, you know, a couple of really successful years in the blues in the early nineties, won the shield two years in a row, domestic one day title. So great team. And then you get picked for the Australian squad to go overseas for the limited overs stuff. What was it like when you got that first call up to the Aussie side? I was pretty blown away, to be honest. I mean, I didn't, didn't believe it. I had a good 92, 93 and 93, 94 New South Wales. We won the one day Mercantile Mutual and the Sheffield Shield. So we won the double two years in a row. And for me, the best part was 1993, 94. Sadly, Greg Matthews was very badly injured uh, with a head injury in Perth and he missed 93, 94. Then I was in full time and so many things happened that year. We were beaten in the worst ever defeat in Adelaide. Uh, I think it was base. Oh, sorry, in Western Australia it was. I remember that. One day, four hours and ten oh, minutes. That I was think. a front page or something. Yeah. And on the front page we were put in a gravestone, all of our heads, which was That's pretty embarrassing. Yeah. And my grandmother thought we'd gone down in a plane, so she wasn't very happy. And, um, <laughs> That's no good. No, but we turned things around off the back of a Steve War-led game two games after that in Adelaide. And we were cruising along for a draw and he, he, we had about five hours to go and he went, I'm going to declare. And I remember the immediate look across the team was, really? You know, they've only got to chase 200, at that stage, 245, I think, 247. I thought, geez, they they can get this and we're going to lose again. And that was us being safe, being scared from the previous worst loss. And we got into the dressing room and I don't know if things happen like that today. I don't know where situations come and we were very quiet. And then Steve Waugh stood up and said, look at this cap, you know. If you don't think we can go and win, throw that cap in the garbage, go home because we're going to go and beat these blokes. He didn't say much more else and took off. He, he walked down to the front and, and the, the rest of us followed and we were probably 30 metres behind him and he was standing at the front gate and, you know, it was, are you ready? Let's go and do this. and. And we went and knocked over South Australia for 158 and we won. And then we went on to win the next seven games in a row and the next four one-day internationals in a row to win the double. And wow. for me, that's where I'd learnt a lot about myself and, and the table turned a little bit, you know. And I all of a sudden got picked for Australia to go to Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Yeah, a couple of things from that. The one thing that's really jumped out at me, speaking to other people who played under Steve Waugh, is is that he was a tremendous backer of people. Mm. He would be in your corner. I, you know, he, he comes across as a fierce character, but he, he would engender so much confidence. And that moment mm. you're talking about there, it was like he backed you to get the result and he, yeah. he really put it on the table. It's, it's, a, it's a great quality as a leader. I think his short sentences then determine all the perception of him as being, you know, a, a tough leader, but he just doesn't do long sentences. Simple Accurate, get to the point. Yeah, like, you know, you sort of compare him to, say, someone like Mark Taylor. He, he was, from what I understand, a lot more of a, a school teacher type leader uh, in a sense that he, he would tell people how he wanted them to bowl a bit more and where I he wanted the field. I would only add an extra two sentences on for Tubby. Okay. Tubby is perceived as being nice and almost politician-like, but... Just he's, he was a tough leader. Mm, that's right. Very, heard, very yeah. strong leader, and you didn't you didn't hope that things went right and he would give you a chance. I mean, I mean, put it this way: um, 
you know, going four years on from here, I got picked for Australia again after a very bad period. I was three years, I was pretty much out of the game and got picked for Australia again in 98. And I started really badly. In India, at Madras, it was, you know, it was 46 degrees. It was, and I was none for 52 off 10 and he took me off. And, you know, I, I didn't bowl for two hours and then brought me back on. But I knew that he wasn't happy. You know, it wasn't about asking. Um, so, yeah, I, I would class Mark Taylor as a very strong, great leader. And Stephen and Mark, not much different at all. Yeah. What a great couple of people to play under, though. Mm. You talk about that tough period. You come back from that limited overs tour. Then it's the Australia A summer. Yeah. So Australia A taking on Australia. One of my favourite summers. Young kid, those games were electric. Remember at the SCG, there was the final Australia A taking on Australia. And Australia, mm. just get over the line. And yeah. that Australia A team, all your teammates, I mean, it's just stacked full of legends. It's a, must have been an incredible mm. experience. That's probably the most incredible experience I've had in cricket. Um, it's never happened again, theoretically. And, um, oh, mate, it was – I mean, I, I, I love Australian culture of the underdog. You know, I love being the underdog. I love being backed against. It's, I think it's the way out. my old man brought me up and, and most did. So, yes, uh, the crowd – Loved Australia A, which was weird. <laughs> Taylor hated it. Oh, I remember. Taylor hated it. I mean, the Australian team were very upset, and I, I can't blame them. I mean, they're, they're playing in their own country, and they're absolutely copying it. But we played, every game we played was to packed out stadiums, and the crowd was incredible. So, but I mean. That, Ponting, that, Langer, Hayden. Oh, yeah. The, the dust up between McGrath and Hayden. Mm. Or well, Hayden, Ponting, Langer, Lehman, Blewett. Uh, the list is long. And um, Adam Gilchrist was around. Well, actually, Adam Gilchrist at that stage wasn't even in the side. Phil Emery was the wicketkeeper. But yeah, I remember that. Incredible. Where you, you think about the emotion of that. For me, it was a really, it's probably one of the weirdest times in my life because uh, we played at the, I think it was January the 23rd, we played at the MCG, you know, 80,000 people, and we've got to win. We've lost the first final at the SCG. So we've got to win the second final to get to the third final, and um, we don't. And then the next day I was basically told that I wouldn't be in the squad to go to South Africa for the Australian team. They're only taking one spin bowler and Shane Warne, obviously, but um, I thought, oh, well, I'll just go home and play for New South Wales, and then I'd normally get through the end of the season, do some coaching. That gets you through to sort of you know August, September, and you're back into your season. but um, I didn't realise I went home and a week later I went and went to the local shop to get the newspaper and milk and, and found out that I was dropped out of the New South Wales side. for I, had, I didn't understand why, but it just said Robertson omitted from the New South Wales team also. And Was it performance-based? Did they have other spinners they wanted to give a go? Any idea? I think it was that um, – no, I think it was that they had Greg Matthews batting five. And if you've got Greg batting five, you don't need another off-spinner batting seven or eight, and you don't need two off-spinners. It was a logical decision, but it wasn't all that. I was obviously very disappointed, but it also put me into a situation where we didn't have contracts. So players today, they have contracts. But, but the selectors didn't even call you and no. tell you? It was just just out on the paper? No, it was just in the paper. Weird. Okay. So you didn't have contracts, so like, how are you going to pay the bills? Well, I couldn't feed the kids... In th- it took three and a half weeks where I, and I couldn't buy dinner or food. or, And I thought, 
what am I going to do? I, I was, after two weeks, I was starting to go for jobs and asking people for work. And But everyone, I, I must have done a dozen interviews and everyone said, oh, mate, I'd love to be able to give you a job, but you'd probably be gone in four or five months back in the New South Wales team. And then, you know, I would have trained you and then you'll be gone. So my boss won't look at that in a great way either. Yeah. So I, I recognised pretty soon I, I was almost unemployable because of my previous three or four years and the perception that you're an Australian slash New South Wales player. So my, God rest his soul, but my father-in-law, it got to about the five-week period after I'd been dropped. He said, I think your only option is to go to Centrelink. And I remember I couldn't believe him saying that, but in the car on the way home, I Logically, I knew he was right, and I I did that. It was only about another three or four days, and I went to Centrelink and you line up. And the worst part about lining up is, or being a, an Australian player, is in those days, most most people knew you, mm. even as a New South Wales player. Absolutely. So if you're in the lineup of 50, 60 people on a Monday morning at eight thirty at Paramount Centrelink, and put, you can hear your name being mentioned, you you know they're either saying, "What are you doing here?" or or carving you up. So I didn't really handle that all that well. It only took about three weeks where I wasn't coping at all. My confidence, I wouldn't even be able to define where my confidence was and I couldn't see a way out. And I, I remember I got parked, the, I got booked the day before parking. And then on the Wednesday when I went back, you had to go at least two or three times a week sometimes. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll park in a Paramount Park and leave my car there and walk across because you didn't have to pay in those days. and. I did that, got out of the horrible meeting at Centrelink where they literally told me I hadn't studied a lot and didn't have many TAFE or university degrees or much behind me from a working point of view. And I remember getting back to my car and I had a classic uh, station wagon Type 3 72 model with the old radio and I sat in there and started listening to the radio and I'd, I'd read, I read the paper and and then all of a sudden I just sort of decided that I'd get some lunch and came back and I had a bit of a sleep and I went a bit of a walk and I didn't realise that I'd sort of been hanging out for about six and a half, seven hours at Paramount Park and I thought, oh, I'll drive home. And I drove home and when I pulled up, the gentleman living opposite me pulled up and his two children ran out, daddy, daddy, you know, back from work. And my car pulled out and my two kids ran out to me also. And all of a sudden I felt like I'd been at work. You know, I was, I was like normal people going to work, coming home. And I knew in bed that night I couldn't wait to get out, wake up, have a shower and get out of the house because I was embarrassed to be there. And then I, don't, I literally drove, I drove back to Parramatta and I literally bought the paper and went to the park and then on Wednesday I had to go back to Parramatta and Centrelink and I just got into a habit where... It turned into three months, three weeks, and four days that I, Monday to Friday, I, I was hiding away at Paramount Park, so no one knew what I was doing or where I was. And it's in, it's, it sounds stupid. It sound, yeah, I was running away and I was afraid, and it's embarrassing, but theoretically it's not because you learn from your mistakes. But I got very lucky. The game was so popular. A guy walking his dog, an old man, seventy mid seventies, you know, walking his dog walks up to me and asks me, "Are you such and such?" And I say, "No, mate, wrong bloke." I remember the dog panting away, and I wanted the dog to go away, and I had my head down, 
pretending just to read the newspaper, but I wanted this guy to leave me alone. And he didn't. And he said, um, you know when it feels like five minutes? It was probably 30 seconds. And he goes, son, I I might not have ever gone to school, let alone even had parents, but I'm a self-funded retiree and I I walk my dog around here and I've seen your face a fair few times over the last 10 or 11 weeks and I thought I'd actually ask you what are you doing because, son, I'm the one thing I'm really good at at the trivia at my local club, I'm, I know everything about the game of cricket. So I just thought today I'd ask you, what are you doing here? And I remember that that just that carved me. He had me. Um, I, I, by that stage, I was probably, you'd call that emotional because you can tell because the paper's getting wet. And I said, so what if you're right? And he went, that's a good start, son. So... You know, I think about that time and, you know, how did it happen? You know, I don't know. It's a powerful story. I mean, why do you, if he didn't stop and, and he could have just walked away too, you know, and he, most people probably would have walked away. But, I mean, I, I, end, I end up sitting with him for four hours probably and just, we just talked and, you know, he didn't have, he didn't have a life. I, I had parents, I had school, most of us did. Adopted kid, you know, gets fostered out everywhere. Pretty much by twelve, thirteen, takes off, gets a job, finds somewhere to live. But he had these lessons that were astonishing. Around, imagine you're a kid working. He was just picking orders, and you don't know what the people around you, the boss, is saying. You don't understand anything. What if you just start writing all those sentences down, and you just collate them? And then after three months or six months or nine months, you know, we're working together and we're going to have recess together or lunch together. After six months, nine months, you become friends with these people. Just ask these people, what did the boss mean when he said this? You get the answer and write the answer down. And then come six, seven, nine years, ten years down the track, you've got your own books thick, full of information about this thing that you're doing as a job that, gives you money to be able to live and eat and start your own life. You know, he's flying mid-20s and mid-30s. He's one of the big bosses running the company, you know, and does a great job, creates his life. I think I think it sort of, I think it was about 60 he retired, just gave it all away. He had, he had kids and grandchildren and I literally left that day. I don't think I've ever felt more motivated. Probably the first time I stopped thinking about myself and thought, wow, like I just kept thinking about him. And then the next day I didn't go to Parramatta Park. I just sitting there, my wife went to cut hair. She was doing some hairdressing. And I remember thinking, wow. And the phone rang and an old bloke I knew I went to school with, he was just, how you going? What are you doing? I said, oh, not too much, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, actually you'd be all right picking orders. Um, I got. I work at David's Limited. You know, I'm at David's. I do all the warehousing stuff. You should come down and see me. And I went, yeah, I'll do that. I went and saw him two days later. Started work the next day, and I did everything that this man told me. Wow. The saddest thing is, the stupidest thing is, when you're motivated around stuff. I never went back. I just got so motivated to work, and I literally worked twelve-hour days. I put cricket in the in the backyard. I wasn't worried too much about cricket. I was focused and 
you know, within, I think it was 22 months later, I was the New South Wales Shelf Management Manager of David's Limited for IGA Metcash, and I saw a life. I had a good life. So I think about that. At the time, I thought it was bad, you know, what I was going through, but learning from an older man and listening and then getting that stuff inside here to fight back and take the steps that you're actually being told and learn from, if you take the steps and you keep taking the steps, you know, you'll get to the top of the hill. So, I mean, I don't wish that sort of stuff on anyone, but if stuff does go pear-shaped, why not just see it as, a part, as, as an opportunity? See it, as, see it as a situation where you don't want to get to 70 or 80 years of age and not know anything or not understand the downtimes of life or be at, how can you teach your children anything if life's been perfect? So I got lucky, I say now. I, I got very lucky that it did go pear-shaped. Well, adversity to certainly um, you know, tests your character and develops your character, but what a, a gift that man gave you that one day. And then I can imagine how happy he would have been not seeing you in that park again yeah. and maybe flicking on the telly a few years down the track and seeing you with a baggy green. Mm. Um, I think it was 2011. I don't know what it was. I was at a Christmas party uh, and I had to drive. I had to go to Fox Sports to do something for the cricket. And I remember driving and I had to, from the, from the function I was at, I had to cut through and I cut through Parramatta Park to beat the traffic to get to Victoria Road and get going. And I immediately thought, wow, I haven't been here for so long. I went back on the Monday and I just sat there for two hours and remembered it and just looked around. And I went back a few times. I never, obviously, I, I didn't see that person again. And I was probably, uh, then I actually was pretty disappointed in myself for being probably selfish and focused. But I had three kids and I think you'd, you know, I, it was only my third child was born basically a year after the had spent when I was in, in the downside of life and I was just got going. So life and time can pass you very quickly. So I guess the good thing is now that wouldn't happen to a young New South Wales cricketer. They, they do care more about your welfare. They care about you having interests and jobs and skills outside cricket. So, mm. you know, when you get to 30, 35, you've got something to fall back on. There wasn't any of that when you were there. As you, you know, you were just basically not selected and off you go. I've been asked a few times, you know, just would I, what would I say to some of the cricketers who have had moments where they're, they're out due to mental health or different things. And I spent, I've, I've got sort of half a dozen young people I sort of help or mentor and look after. I would sort of say to them, I literally start with exactly what this old man said to me around, well, what do you want in life? And what do you expect? Um, and once you start to get down the, you know, what do I want and what do I expect, and you roll those things out, you'll see the faults within your thinking. And if you think it's going to be perfect, it's not. If you fluke a perfect life, how much do, have you learnt or how much of a story do you have to teach others or, you know, to think back when you're 70 or 80, I've had a good life. So, you know, I th sort of, Talk to these younger people about seeing it as opportunity. What does opportunity look like? And what, what do you think your career looks like now? But now stop and pretend and let's forget that you've played. Now you're 40. You're not a cricketer anymore, for example, or a rugby league player or an AFL player. You are a guy who has a family, for example, and you're 
and you're working? Do you love the job you do? Are you interested? Is your weekly routine good? Are you doing things in your life that you're enjoying and plus with regard to your family and your children that you're enjoying and you see all of that stuff moving forward? Because if you haven't stopped and thought about that, you could get to that retirement age of 35 or 36 or whatever it is and hit a hole with what am I going to do now? And if you if you just focus only on cricket and don't enter your mind into other interests and have it being interested in reading or learning other stuff or opening your mind up to uh, the wider the wider world, geez, you can damage who you are as a person, not only as a person but as a player and a performer. And that's how you easily fall into holes of where you've you've got two months of bad form or one month of bad form, whatever it is. Nothing like being interested in other stuff too or what you are doing and then being able to throw logic onto the wall and go, okay, I'm playing a game today, for example. What do I need to do? What am I good at and what do I need to do? And really be able to go and deliver that day in, day out, not just go and hope. Yeah, you know, control it. Hope's, hope's a nice thing. But in the end, it comes down to you to make those choices. It sounds like that tough time has um, been really important in just shaping the way you are now like, and, and giving you the tools to deal with the ups and downs. It, it sounds yeah. like that moment really galvanised a lot. I try and teach younger players or younger people. Even my kids, I've got 32, 27 and 25, and they've gone through their ups and downs. But learn to say yes before no. Have a good think against yes, but give yes a, a chance. Because, I mean... If I w- didn't learn from, you know, the ideal of saying yes from, from that old man, would, would I have said yes to some of those things? No, I wouldn't have. I would have said no to far more things. He might have told you, mate, look, I'm not interested in the job. Exactly. And, you know, if you, th- if you look at it, I, I finally give the game away in 2001. I say yes off the cuff to leave the club Balmain I love, enjoy my cricket, to go and start a new club at Blacktown. And it was difficult. But... A lot of, I didn't know a lot of other people were saying no. I took it as an opportunity in saying yes, and it turned out to be a great success because the club happened. They got up and running. But then I ended up finding my way because the mayor was so happy. He said, you've got to stay here. I'm going to pay you. You've done a great job. I don't know what you're going to do. And I'm in council at Blacktown. Honestly, mate, I've got no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and... I was lucky to work with an ex-triathlete who was an economic development officer. He said, come to a meeting with me and we go to a meeting and I'm listening to everything he says and there's a big traffic jam and we sneak off a sideway to get out of this huge traffic jam on the M4. We go down a back road and we come past a company that has pallets on the road and he stops and he says, this is no good. It's Makita, right? The big company, Makita. I said, what's wrong? He said, these pallets on the road. It's no good. It means there's lockdown. They, they, can't, they can't get enough product in. They need maybe bigger opportunity. Let's go and see them. I thought, what are we going to do? I walk in and he says, can I speak to the CEO? I'm from Blacktown Council. And the lady says, no, the, the CEO is very busy. And this gentleman walks by and says, are you Gavin, Robert- Gavin Robertson? I go, yes. He goes, oh, hi, you spoke at my son's cricket presentation three years ago. Oh, we're at blah, 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 St. Matthew's at Borkham Hills. And, and next minute, I, he says, what are you doing here, Gavin? I said, I'm just here with Ben from Blacktown Council. We're just having a look around, I'm guessing here. 
And we dropped in to see um, what's going on here. And we wanted to see the CEO. He goes, I'm the CEO. Come and have a coffee. And we literally went and saw him. Within an hour, he loved Ben's idea. He, was, he needed a bigger space. And we, Blacktown Council was doing new spaces out at Eastern Creek to create greater logistical option, opportunities. And within, I think it was in, within about 11 weeks, 12 weeks, Makita signed to a program to move out. And 10 months later, they moved out to Eastern Creek. And all of a sudden, again, I had no idea what I was doing. And all of a sudden, I'd become an economic development officer. <laughs> and myself and Ben Artup, who I worked with, we went and did a lot of that work for 10 years. Wow. And, you know, if I had said no, again, those opportunities wouldn't have happened. And then that's how I ended up at the Giants. The AFL came to me and said, um, you've got a radio show in Sydney and you know a lot of the businesses in Western Sydney from the Blacktown Council work. We've got this idea of starting a new club called the, they're going to be the GWS, Greater, Greater Western Sydney team. Would you think of being involved? And everyone said to me, no, don't do that. Do you even like AFL or did you? I, I liked AFL. I didn't follow a lot of it at all. I followed a bit of the Swans, yeah, but not a lot of it. And I said yes straight away. You know, I mean, I said yes. The gentleman, Dale Holmes, I actually wasn't sure, and I was going to go for a job with New South Wales Cricket, and I saw Dale Holmes, and he said, come and listen to Kevin Sheedy speak tomorrow, Gavin, and when you hear him speak, call me and say yes or no. Just give me that chance. I thought, okay. I went and listened to Kevin Sheedy speak. And I'm telling you now, mate, I wanted to play hearing him speak. Yeah, right. I wanted to play. Like I was, I think, what are the 12, 43 years of age. Ready to pull the boots on? I, I would have. <laughs> I wanted to play. You and Alex Carey running out there. Yep. Yep. Alex Carey actually started at the Giants. And uh, that was one of the saddest decisions. First ever decision I had to hear of in AFL. Gubby Allen, who was a legendary football manager, he was the Giants football manager, he said, that boy Alex Carey, we're not going to be able to take him on to the start of 2012. And Alex had been the NEFL team's captain the year before, 2011, and he was bloody brilliant. And Kevin Sheedy said, this guy is an outright leader, at his, at even at his age. And I remember seeing him in the car park, and I said, Alex, I'm gutted. I'm so gutted. I said, you know what, but a couple of people I know in Adelaide have told me, you're a pretty good cricketer. Are you going to play cricket again? He goes, oh, yeah, I, th I think I will, yeah. I said, you know what, if you go home and you're playing first grade and you're keeping really well, when you go out to bat, you bat all day. I bet you in the, the way the game is at the moment, if you go out and show that you can focus for two hours, have a break, focus for another two hours, and then even hopefully bat for another two hours and try and bat a whole day, three or four times in a year, and score hundreds. I said, you watch the cricket selectors. They'll come looking for you. Boy, they'll they'll want to be the guy that finds you. And he went home and started to really impress people. And all of a sudden, he's an Australian cricketer, but I'll never be more upset driving away from Blacktown International Sports Park that day than when we... We dropped him because, to be honest, he he would have made it as an. Was he shattered? Was he shattered? I think he was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I'll bet you pounds to peanuts he would have made it because it's not about talent with Alex Carey. He's got talent. It's it's mind. Trent Copeland's a great example. Trent bowls 
128, 130Ks, been doing that his whole life. But he hits the ball in the Glenn McGrath area of basically hitting the area of an ice cream lid and very difficult to score off. Been doing that for 15 years. Very, you know, you, you, how you think about yourself and what you can deliver is the ultimate cricketer we're, or sports person we're all looking for. And they're the sorts of guys that own that. Yeah, absolutely. Copes is a big favourite of mine. Mm. You have that tough time, but then, then we, you know, we're going into the best period of, you know, your cricket career. So not, I remember this. I was a young off spinner, so I was following you pretty closely. And leading into that Indian tour, there was some whispers about you getting picked. But I remember thinking, people not playing shield cricket. He's playing mm. for Balmain. I think he played maybe one shield game that summer or something. Yep. Took five for. Then you get called up to go and take on Tendulkar, mm. Laxman, Dravid, Azaruddin. In India, which was not the same as it is now. It would have been a tough tour. I mean, can you just run me through, like, how did you get any inkling the selectors were, no. were thinking about you? Because, what, they had Warren, McGill? Oh, no idea. I mean, I literally, um, I got picked. I was playing, I was the shelf management manager at David's Limited, uh, IGA. And, um, you know, I turn up to state practice and that's cool. I got picked, I don't know what happened, I think Greg Matthews was playing then, but I got picked to play at the SCG in a Shield game. Actually, no, I got picked in some one-day games, and I did really well. I got two wickets and then three wickets. I got a man of the match. Um, for the Blues or Australia? For the Blues. Blues, yeah. And, um, and then all of a sudden, I was still working, and I didn't have many holidays. I was pretty flat out heading up into Christmas, and New South Wales needed a, a spin bowler for Adelaide due to an injury. And I went to Adelaide and I took, um, I took eight wickets and I think I got 38 runs. And, and we won. It was a great game. And I came home and I was asked to go to Victoria for the next Shield game. But it was likely I was going to be 12th man. I actually spoke to my company and said, look, I'll pull out. I'm going to be 12th man. But I was 12th man, but... All of a sudden, out of the blue, I was at work and my um, Peter Roebuck, um, Shane Roebuck, Warne. complicated man, Peter yeah, Roebuck. absolutely, yeah. Shane Warne has been injured, cannot go to the New, Ze New Zealand one-day tournament. And the surprise selection is uh, New South Wales cricketer Gavin Robertson. And my, I heard it. And my se I, I have a secretary at that stage and she heard my name. She said, Gavin, was that your name on the radio? And I went, no, no, no. That was a literal out-of-body experience yeah. then. Because in my office, I had the test cricket running. Yeah. Like I actually had the commentary running. I thought, what is going on here? They've named me in this side. Again, they're the old days. Young players don't realise. You, you found out everything by radio or by the newspaper. And I thought, what am, this can't be serious. What am I going to do? I've got this job. How am I going to go to New Zealand for two weeks? And I was stressing for two hours. And then my boss put his head around the corner. He said, Robbo, have you got a minute? I said, yeah, yeah, what's up? He said, not much. He said, but we have Channel 10 and Channel 9 and Channel 7 out the front of our building. <laughs> and they've spoken to the lady down the, uh, the secretary down the front, and they'd like to speak to you. I went, ah. Oh. He goes, come for a walk with me. And I walked out with him, and he said, uh, I've asked them what's going on, and I know. And I said, I don't know, mate. I don't know. I, I, he said, you do this interview and then come up and see me and the big boss, the CEO. I said, okay. 
Anyway, I went out and did the interview and said I was very surprised and all of that. Went upstairs and uh, I walked in with my general manager, Pete Davis, and my CEO, and we sat there and I, he said, well done, Gavin, congratulations. I said, thank you, but you tell me that if I can't go, I'm totally fine with that because I, this job means everything to me and it's my career, my life forward. And this man, he said to me, Gavin, I, I, I can't tell you that. I'm a boy from Wales and, you know, I at 14 years, 15 years of age, I used to work six miles under the ground in a mine and then I got the boat out here and I came to Australia. I got off the boat, tried to live somewhere and then, you know, I, I worked at the Gladesville Mental Health Hospital as a mental health nurse helping people and then I, I found myself into a really good job and I l- learned and I've obviously graduated myself very well in the last 35 years. And yeah, I'm, I'm the CEO, but there's no way I'm going to tell you not to do this. You've got to do this. The job will be here, but you've got to go for it. And now, I, you know, I, I felt free and I, I, I got lucky in a way. I went, for, went to New Zealand and took the most wickets. And next minute I came home. And what do you think I got picked for? Two weeks later, I got named into the New Zealand team. Uh, sorry, the Australian team to go to India yeah, from amazing. New Zealand. So I was pretty shocked, mate. And I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I'm sure. I mean, uh, if I just quickly, if I said to you, Shane Warne, Stuart McGill, Gavin Robertson, and pr- pretend you're Gavin Robertson, do you think you're going to play the three tests? No, not at all. Not at all. No way in the world. Well, what, just before we go on, what is your relationship like, or was it like with the other spinners at the time? So, like, I, I, you, my, my, Matthews used to coach me a bit, so I know. Oh, a little bit. He's a, he's a wild guy, but what was he like sort of, you know, because he, he could probably feel you nipping at his heels and, you know, what was Warney and McGilla like? McGilla's been on this podcast. He's a lunatic, but yeah. uh, I love him. Um, you know, what was it like that back then between you all? Uh, well, spin bowling was extremely important in New South Wales. Um, we would normally have six spin bowlers in the Shield squad. Greg Matthews was an extremely tough competitor. He was never going to, you know, fault his own outcome and not be in the side. He was, he's the greatest all-rounder to ever play for New South Wales. So just to, to you know, be able to get over the top of him at any stage was a, was a good effort. Um, Shane Warne is the most – Shane Warne's the most consistent and best spin bowler I've, I've seen and played with. The most dynamic spin bowler I've ever seen is, uh, is Stuart McGill. I mean, his leg spin you could hear – coming down the wicket in the air, and he's wrong. And if you didn't pick it, it would normally knock out leg stump or miss leg stump, and the keeper would miss it and go through to fine leg. He was dynamic, so they were brilliant. And as I just said to you, there's no way in the world, you know, I don't care who you are. You could have ever thought you were going to get picked, and I'll be be straight with you. I didn't think I was going to get picked. I thought I'd be making drinks for the the 11-week tour. Yeah, and um, what was Warney like to bowl with? You know, was he really good? Yeah, I mean, obviously he's keeping the pressure on, and mm. he does his own thing in life. But with regard to bowling, it's a partnership, no different than a batting partnership. So you know that you're you're bowling together. You're not just bowling on your own. So if he bowls a really good over, my job is to do the same and put pressure on and build the pressure by four overs becomes eight overs become twelve overs of pressure, and you get that right. It's normally one to two wickets. If you get lucky, it could be more. But that's really, you know, the aim. So 
mind you, I, I didn't help him at the start. I was, I mean, we're playing against the best yeah, team con- in the world. In their conditions. With regard to facing spin bowling in their conditions. Yeah, I reckon McGill without Warren might have taken 500 test wickets on his own. Absolutely, yeah. So I know back then there was no fancy baggy green presentation. So was yours another just mailed out job? No, it was just in the corner of my bag. In the in the bag. Nice. I got lucky, but in 1994 when I got picked on the Australian tour, I got a I got a cap, but yep. I didn't get picked for a test, so I kept the cap. Because you know the standard question now to all the cricketers is, so who gave you your baggy green? Oh, and they've no. all got these stories about, oh, you know, they brought down Bill Brown, and he, you know, was gushing to us. And but back in your day, it was yeah. right in the kit. Well, I remember Tugger. We were rooming together, and he walked back in. He said, um, "Well done." I went, "What do you mean?" And this is two days before the first test. He said, you're in. I went, what? He said, you're in the first test. I went, what are we, we playing three spin bowlers? He goes, no, it's you and Shane Warne. I said, no, Stuart McGill. How can you not pick Stuart McGill? He just got five for 70 against South Africa in the last test. What are you doing? He goes, we want a leg spinner and an off spinner. And I remember thinking, I mean, I couldn't believe it, to be honest. I remember that match really well. The what, first test, 1998. Um, you, you come out, you take four wickets, and you said you got none, you were none for 50. So at that point, you're thinking, Test cricket's really hard. Uh-huh. I mean, you talk about you know, Trent Copeland, I think he took a wicket with his second ball in Test cricket. Nathan Lyon, his first ball. You had to work bloody hard. Do you remember who your first Test wicket was? Well, I, I mean, I do, yeah. I'll get to that point, but I, going back to what I was saying before, so I, your habit of running away doesn't just immediately die, you know. It's in your DNA. So... I was none for 52 off 10 overs taken off. I'll be really straight with you. That two hours sitting at fine leg and mid, mid on, I thought, maybe I'm gone. Maybe I'm not good enough. And I did have a few thoughts. Well, you know, I'm here now. Come on. Like, you know, I've, I've, it's only three years ago I was sitting in Parramatta Park. You know, think, how, what have I learned? I mean, and, was that really in your mind at the time? Because this is just a, a huge roller coaster. Mm. Full, full house at the MCG. Life at a crossroads. I remember Mark Taylor waving, saying, you're on. I can't lift my arm because I've had a shoulder yeah. operation. He said, you're on. So I waited two hours. I remember Steve Wall running down. I remember players would run down to the grab your cap and run mm. it back to the, to the umpire. Yep. Now they keep it because of COVID. Mm. Well, he ran, grabbed it. And we're walking up. He goes, are you going to take this crap? Are you gonna, you know, are you going to back out of this? Get in there and get some pressure on this guy. It's Ganguly. I want to get stuck into Ganguly. We want to get Ganguly out. He's a good player. Get stuck into him. Let's build pressure. You wouldn't put up with this crap at home. If you're playing me and Mark were playing at Bankstown, you'd be stuck. You'd be getting stuck into it. So what's the difference now? And it really was a, literally lasted ten seconds. That type of conversation. And I remember thinking, "Yep." And I bowled three good balls, and Ganguly defended them. And I remember the third one. Stephen came in, picked it up. Racing in from cover, picked it up and underarmed the ball really hard to Ian Healy. And now you would remember that Ian Healy, our fielders used to return the ball and field aggressively. Let's be really honest about it. The ball would miss the batsman's head by about a foot, a foot and a half. Wasn't an accident. It was always close. It was always let the batsman know that we're coming after you. And I know it's completely or it's politically incorrect to talk how I'm telling, but I'm telling you the truth. And that's how we played. We were an aggressive team. And I bought a maiden and the side lifted. They were noisy, a few pats on the back, pat on the bum, back down to the final leg, coming back in. As I'm walking back in, the team's loud again. 
you know, let's get stuck into this batsman. Let's do this. Come on, boys. And all of a sudden, I've knocked over three maidens. Now, I've gone none for 52 off 10. Now I'm none for 52 off 13. Fielders are getting closer. And then Sarav Ganguly thinks that I'm going to turn the ball and it hits the shiny side and skids straight. And I decide, oh, geez, I better go up for that. And I go up loud. And I appeal and George Sharp, the umpire, I think he was from Nottinghamshire in England. And he must not have liked Sarav Ganguly also. I remember him sort of leaning. He actually looked at me because I'm bowling around the wicket and he looked at me and went, I lad, that's out. And like next minute I was like, oh, my God, I've got my first wicket. So it was a... It was a, an amazing moment. I mean, I'm sure Sarav Ganguly was absolutely shocked to be given out. But, um, yeah, I mean, next minute you go from none for 52 off 10 to four for 72 off 28, I think, something like that. So, yeah, the game can, you know, it can, it can change and turn around pretty quickly. In the end, like life, take it on or get the left hook and end up on the ground. What do you want to do? Yeah, it sounds like you've picked yourself up from the canvas a few times. Uh, I, I, was it in one day cricket you got hit for a six first ball? Was that one day cricket? Yeah. Yeah, my first debut. So any time, even. Um, I remember that. Really, did it happen twice? It happened in Australia as well. Yeah. yeah. So in, I got picked for my first ever one day game in Sri Lanka against. Because uh, that's, that's going to set the dressing room alight, like that sort of stuff. And Tubby Taylor says, you're on. So I mark it out. I look around and here's Ian Healy and Arjuna Ranatunga going at each other. Because. Again, we put pressure on batsmen. And that wasn't immediately I was at, I had to wait about a minute and a half to bowl, two minutes. So the pressure built a bit and I, lost, you know, I, I think I lost my rhythm a bit. And I, I remember running in and when you used to get the cane at school, the bottom of your, your legs used to feel like they were just going to fall off. And I felt a little, little bit like that running in. And I remember I bowled a full toss right at Arjuna Ranatunga's stomach because it was a little bit large. And it's, it's nothing worse than you get smashed over deep mid-wicket, 37 rows back. It's pretty embarrassing, you know. I remember thinking, geez, I bowled a full toss first ball. I'm hit out of the ground. The crowd's going wild. So it was uh, a pretty embarrassing time, to be honest. I mean, I think I, I went none for 10 off my first over, and I think I went none for 26 off seven or eight overs, but that wasn't a good start. No, but were you first ball in test cricket, you must have been hoping, geez, don't want this getting yeah. hit over the fence. Well, I played a couple more. I, only, I might have played one or two more one day games, but then I came back home and Australia v Australia A at the MCG. And I was actually taken out of the Australian A team and put into the Australian side to play England because Tim May had a, a bad shoulder. Then I was making my Australian debut at the MCG. So this is my second debut because it's only because it's at home. And Steve Ward decides to walk over to me before I'm going to bowl to settle me a bit and says to me, Hey, mate, let's, you know, because he, it's only like a few months ago I'd had my first debut, he said, you know, just make this one bounce at least. <laughs> and I think he thought that was a way of making me settle down or making me laugh a bit and settle down. It didn't. I made it bounce all right. I mean, I'm only Twice. bowling 102 or I'm bowling, what, 97 kilometres an hour. I stupidly made it bounce halfway down the wicket to Graham Hick, no. you know, six foot four Zimbabwean. And he, he hit it into the old scoreboard over deep square leg at MCG. I mean, it was just embarrassing. So, Thanks. I mean, again, I had to deal with first ball again, hit for six. So that, that was two, two debuts in a row. And then when I waited three years to play my test debut, and I was thinking, oh, this is great. No one will, will remember three years ago or four years ago. No one will know, you know. 
And then stupidly Steve Wall walks over again as I'm being brought on. And, um, you know, how you feeling? You know, are you ready? Yeah, no, I'm all good. I'm all good. He goes, you know what? Just relax. In fact, just let's keep this one inside the ground. <laughs> like, so you don't go for six again. Like, I'm thinking that'll settle me down. Well, it didn't settle me down. Mind you, I bowled to Nayan Mongia, who was the Indian wicketkeeper. And I, he must have been, uh, uh, he must have studied at TAFL University uh, IT because he must have read Google. And at five foot seven or five foot eight, you don't expect him. He's the type of guy that's going to try and belt you it's out like of Chris the ground. Chris Gale or someone. If it was Chris Gale, yeah. But um, no, mate, I, I bought a really good delivery, good shape, good length. And this bloke, Nayan Mongia, he almost probably dislocated L5S1 and his vertebras. He swung that hard at this thing. First ball. And I remember hearing it thinking, oh, no. And it flying out over deep, deep mid-wicket. Oh, no. It's not a third six, uh, is it? And, and Dave Shepard, the great English umpire, he was looking, and I'm looking, thinking, get down, get down. And the ball bounced, and the crowd's gone up, and the next minute Dave Shepard's like, I think it's six. And I, here I am as the bowler, not thinking that there's microphones or anything around, going, oh, no, 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 that's four, Dave. i got kids, you know, I've got three kids. I don't want my the kids seeing this. <laughs> Ah, oh, it's it's four, Dave. No worries. That's got to be a four. Bounced inside. Oh no, I, 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 it could be six, Gavin. So we're waiting. It was the worst two minutes. Waiting, Must have felt like waiting, two hours. waiting. Ah, oh. and when he finally went four, I was like, yes, you beauty. I felt I was okay with being hit for four. Can you imagine your first three debuts? You get hit for six first ball. I mean, you would never be able to talk As an about ordinary off-spinner, I can imagine. Cause oh, you probably can. It has happened similar situations, not quite on that stage. Yeah. Uh, what about the, with the bat? First innings, you make 50. So first, first test, four wickets, half century, happy days. I mean, that's every kid's dream, isn't it? Yeah. I think, I think, yeah. I think Steve Waugh played me for a bit of a fool, and he told me that Ian Healy, out of the three selectors, and Ian Healy – didn't vote for me, he, that he voted for Adam Dale to be in the first test. No, Queensland is sticking together. Medium pace swing bowler. and Now, I still don't know if that's true because Heels, I'm pretty sure Heels said it wasn't true, but I think, I think he did that for some type of reason because he knew that I'd want to try and prove myself. Anyway, it got down to we bowl them out and I think, you beauty, I've got a day and a half off here. We're the number one team in the world we are. Our team will bat. And next minute we were, I think we were eight for 190. Wasn't very good. Wasn't pretty. Okay, so they got 275. and Yeah, and we were. And I'm walking out to bat, and who am I batting with? Ian Healy. So I thought, okay, I'm going to show this bloke. And he was like, come on, head down. We've got to get stuck in here. And, and I was like, yeah, no, no, I'll be here. You know, let's go. And I actually, to be honest, it was perfect. I wasn't thinking about myself and panicking. I was thinking, watch the ball, defend and stay in and prove to this guy that I can stay in with him and help him because he's doing, he was 36 not out at that stage, 35 something, and doing well. So, And look, the great thing was we batted for four hours together and my, I think we only put on 105 in that four hours. That's how tough it was. It was 46, 47 degrees and about 88 humidity. It was bloody tough, mate. But How tough is it playing in India? Uh, I mean... You've played out in Madras. grade grounds in Campbelltown. You played everywhere in Sydney, and they can get pretty hot and stuff, but 
It's a hum- humidity that gets yeah. you. Yeah, humidity's hot. So, but it was a magnificent time. I think we went from, you know, 190. We ended up, I think, you know, we got up over 330 runs in the first dig, and that put us ahead by about. I think we were ahead by about 70 runs. Yeah, I think. But it was a really good moment, and you know, again. I mean, when you watch me bat, I was not exciting. Uh, I think I batted for four and a half hours for that 57. But, it, you know, to me it means something. And, and more so just about personally be able, being able to overcome a tough situation and, and do quite well. So they're the, they're the little things you want in sport, the little things you remember. You don't need a trophy. You just need those little things to remember. Yeah, I mean, what a fantastic start and what a what a, an innings and what a, what a tough tour, though, because, you know, it was mm. a – Tendulkar had a great series. Um, Azaruddin, I think, had a good series. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was it like bowling to Tendulkar in his pomp? Oh, mate. Well, he's you know, obviously a great player, and it's, it's, it's overwhelming because I remember in the second test at Calcutta, Eden, Eden Park, or Eden Gardens, they call it, uh, what holds 121,000 people. And I think there was 98 or on nearly 100,000 on this day. and uh, VVS Laxman was on. I dismissed him on ninety six, caught behind by Ian Healy, and we're in the we're in the group and everything's. Oh, you know, we got a wicket, you beauty. And I remember saying to someone, "Who's in next?" and didn't even get to hear the answer because Sachin Tendulkar had started to walk out on the travertine tiles, the entry point to the ground, and once the crowd had saw, like once they saw him, mate, oh my god, the noise level went to. It was like that movie Spinal Tap where the, the, the guitars go to 11. You can't hear each other. And I, I thought, wow, you know, he's, he's just beloved. I love him in this all over the world. But, and I, I probably got a little bit nervous actually against him. Got a little bit, sh- little bit short and he just cut it through a square point for four and off and running. I think he got 150 or all. He's a beautiful feel, player, mate. Did you feel like he had a wider bat or something? Well, bowling to the Indians, you couldn't keep them on strike. That was the hardest thing. They got off strike all the time. Just locking them down was difficult. They were able to get the line and move into a, a, a line where they could hit the ball into a hole to get off strike if they couldn't hit it for, for a four or, or, or a natural driver or a sweep shot. So they were constantly aggressive at you. Yeah, right. A tough tour, but in the third test, Australia gets a win. Mm. Australia gets a win. Now, I think um, well, Casper took five. Uh, you took five wickets in the match, mm. uh, despite Tendulkar scoring 177. I think it was in Bangalore. And actually, when you think about what's happened since then, Australia haven't won many tests in India since that. I mean, they've won a few, but not yeah. many. Well, we Must won the 2000. It was a two, 2003 when Adam Gilchrist was. Yeah, 2004, yeah. I think we won the series. We won a couple. Yeah. Won mm. a couple of tests there. We probably only won four or five tests since then on the in India. So, yeah. um, incredible way to finish the tour. <laughs> Tubby, I think, scored a hundred at yeah. the fourth innings. Tubby got ninety, I think. Yeah, that's ninety-one. It. Yeah. So, I mean, I was that. That was the test match where I was brought on eleven minutes before lunch. And you're if you've bowled spin, you'll, everyone will know that. Oh, it's good, especially a test match. It's Love to come on, bowl two overs. Two maidens, none for none at lunch, enjoy my lunch and get myself ready to get going. Do you have any idea how difficult it is to eat um, butter chicken and a papadam with a little bit of rice um, when you are none for 31 off two overs? <laughs> what happened? Uh, Navjot Singh Sidhu was the opening batsman for India 
and he absolutely just punished me those two overs. He didn't even wait to defend. I think he ran at me first ball, but I, I went. I think I went for, I went for three sixes and three fours, and I think a two and a three, or something like that. I got smashed, and I remember walking off thinking, "Oh, here we go again." Same as the first test. Here we go again, and mate, I nibbled away at my butter chicken. I was struggling again. But I made a rash. De- you make. Uh, it's interesting how you make decisions in the game. I made a rash decision. I was brought on. I think I was brought on about an hour later. And um, again, because Tugger and I grew up together, so he'd often, you know, when I was bowling, especially God, he played the four tests, so he'd come to mid off, and we'd talk a bit. And I actually changed my run up. I didn't tell anyone. See, a few nights before the game, we we met with Erapili Prasanna, the legendary spin bowler for India, and he said to me and Stephen at, at Mark Mascarenas' dinner, he was sitting with us, he goes, you guys actually, you don't really know what you're doing. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? And Stephen said, well, if you know so much, you tell us what, what are we doing wrong. And he t- t- talked to me about the pace of the ball and the overdrive of the ball. And you actually bowl a little bit quicker and you drive a bit quicker over the top of the ball. And it may seem that you're bowling five kilometres, seven kilometres quicker but you're going to get greater grip and the ball will jag and spin. And, and I hadn't, I'd done a little bit of it in, in the nets, but I, and I thought, bugger this, I'm, I'm going for it. I lengthened my run up by about three feet, three, three steps. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, man, I'm going to run in a bit harder and bowl a little bit quicker and see what happens. I went, now? I went, yep, I'm going for it. It seems like a stupid decision, but I was, a, uh, yeah, a bit desperate in that situation, none for 31 off two. and. Instinct took over as well. Yeah. And Sachin Tendulkar was facing. And uh, he came forward and the ball pitched and it bit away, jumped up, went through his batten pad, up past his shoulder and past Ian Healy for four buys. And I thought, oh, my God, what just happened? And I remember thinking, and the umpire, you know, four buys. And, but I thought, wow, this is something's just happened. I'm going to do it again. I bowled two overs. And I was, all of a sudden, they weren't running down at me. Because Arapili Prasanna said, you want to drive over the top of the ball and hard. And when the ball gets to that three, four metres from the batsman and drops, as that batsman's coming down the deck at you, as it drops quickly, he's going to stop and think. And he's going to search for the ball. And that's really what happened. It was a great lesson. And I I thought, bugger this. I obviously didn't change and I ran with it. I think I went none for I was none for thirty one off the two and I ended up with two for fifty two off twelve I think or something like that. Got to hit two for fifty eight. Two for fifty eight off twelve. Incredible. And then um, and then the second innings I think I was three, three for twenty eight. Three for twenty eight off ten. It worked. So it all worked. I guess like technically like the extra work on the ball would get more from the natural variation yeah. of the Indian pitches as opposed to in Australia where it just comes on a bit. Yeah. Easy to hit when it's like that. That was great. It was um it was an amazing that that's that's probably one of the greatest feelings because we Mark Taylor and Michael Slater went out and with a bit of help Michael uh Mark War also um he got some runs and they, they chased we chased down two hundred. I think we were two for two hundred roughly. Which we would never do now. No. Never. We chased it down. We'd be lucky to chase a hundred on spinning oh, deck. It's one of the greatest ever wins never gets spoken about. Yeah. Mark Taylor and Michael Slater just and Mark War saved saved our butt on a really dangerous Bangalore wicket. The thing was turning square, difficult to play, and uh, it never gets spoken about. No. But yeah, it's only one win because we lost two one. But 
not forgotten. Yeah, and I think I think that win has gained value since then. Mm. See what's happened since. So India out bowl warning, your twelve wickets warning just six. So um, you can say for one two are you out bowled. The greatest spin bowler of all time. Well, that's, that's probably my best chance of winning anything at <laughs> trivia. I want he got smacked in that too. I mean, you can say what you want. They took him to pieces. I he had was... a mate of mine running trivia at the pub and he ran with that question about, I don't know, a dozen times. He said, <laughs> he said, you want to hear the good news, Robert? I said, what? He said, no one ever got the answer correct. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So there it's um, another great tour. You head to Pakistan and you finish your test career with a draw in Karachi. So... How do you sort of look back at that period of your life now? That sort of, you know, it was such a sort of one year of just being in the Australian side and performing. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I just think I w- if, if I had not have been dropped in 95 and I hadn't have gone through what I'd gone through, I wouldn't have made it back. It, I might have lasted maybe two or three more years and just floated off, to be honest. I wouldn't have... Um, because everything that came up in my my life from that period onward with both with, with a few things with with playing the game of cricket is one two is building a working career and probably three is the most important thing understanding fatherhood and and family all all those lessons helped all those three things and and got me down the track otherwise I would have had to learn those things when I'd retired and that might have been late 90s or early 2000s, and then I would have to start again. I see myself being lucky to be dropped in the middle and learn in the middle and get myself understanding what life is like when the game's finished and how to move on quickly and, and get going. So I, got, I, I see myself as getting lucky, yeah. I think perspective's really important, and you were certainly given that um, early on. You mentioned fatherhood there. Yeah, how has... You know, your professional sports career helped you as a father. I, I do a lot of stuff now with universities or big business or just separate players who ask. And I, I ask them about, you know, what are they interested in and where do they see the future and what do they want it to be at the end, all those sorts of things. But then I get them to understand, are you comfortable and are you willing to be honest about your failures? Have you even defined your failures in your life? Now, I admit to them that I used to run away from failure. But once I'd sort of learned from an older man about understanding and learning from that, then success comes. So I do this thing where you understand 49% of your failures. And if you do that and be cool with it and learn from it and enjoy that, you'll really enjoy your 51% of success. And to be really honest, you don't need more than 50% or 51% of success in your life to have a good life. No, failure does breed success, definitely. Oh, what a what a story! So I want to just talk about some of the players you play with before we um, wrap this up. Um, so Steve War, he's like my Moby Dick of podcast guests. Still haven't got him, but I'm working on it. Um, but you know, he he you know has played such a role in your life. You've mentioned him a few times. Well, what does he mean to you? Um, he's he's straight up, and he doesn't waste time with hour-long sentences, like I can at times. I work in radio. It's good to get used to that at times. But He paid for it. So good. Yeah, he's straight up. And if he's not saying something, it's generally because he doesn't have anything to say. But if you ask him, he'll tell you, and it, it, it won't be 15-minute waste of time. It'll be a definitive two or three minutes. That's it. I think he's generally 
he likes to be interested in stuff. You know, it's not just that's why he took up writing books and taking photos. So keep himself interested in other things. You know, I think Stephen's generally pretty simple type of fellow. He doesn't like doesn't need the world to be complicated and overarching. Keep it simple. Keep it honest. Keep it straight. I think that's really who he is. He seems fiercely loyal and supportive. I know he was mm-hmm. the, the the person there. To, you know, when you got your cancer diagnosis to take you from the airport to the hospital, I mean, yeah. he's someone that seems like he's always been there for you in the tough times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's weird that, you know, you brought that up because when I, when Charlie Teo called me, I was in Melbourne with the Giants. We just got beaten by Hawthorne and he said, where are you? I said, I'm in Melbourne. He said, we found a brain tumour. Get on the plane. I've spoken to Tugger, Stephen. And he's going to pick you up at 3.30 and bring you to me and I'm going to take this tumour out of your brain at 5 o'clock. That's how it happened. And I remember arriving, I got off the plane and Lynette Wall was there. And she, I said, Lynn, what are you doing here? And she said, you were here for me 13 years ago when they saved my life. She had a slow leak aneurysm. She was saved by Charlie Teo. And I'm here now. I'm going to take you to the hospital. And I think about it. It was the same situation where when that happened to Lynette, Stephen was in Melbourne doing things for his book. And he rang me and said, can you go over to the house, get the kids? Lynette's going to the hospital. And, um, yeah, it's, it's weird. So it just swapped around mm. 13 years later. So, I mean, I, I think that... Um, it's sometimes things are really weird how they happen. You know, the, the, old, the old frame, sharing is caring. It's the easiest way to define friendship in life. Sharing, you are caring for others. Sounds like you have a really special relationship with Steve and his family and, you know, you need them in life. What about his brother, Mark? You said you play with him. He's a great character. I love, um, he's the best catcher I've ever seen. I've never seen anyone catch a ball like yeah. Mark Wall. Yeah, he's probably the, one of the greatest fielders we've ever had. The simplest way I can put it is I, I don't see much of a difference between Mark and Stephen. So people often would say that Stephen was the fighter and Mark was the elegant type of player. And I think that's completely wrong. You, you can't play any sport against them for fun. You can't go and play golf or tennis and just have a fun hit. They always Generally, want to win? Yeah, everything's about winning. It's a competition. Sport. That's what sport is about generally. So let's go for it. And I, I like that. And people, with Mark War, he probably gets the wrong judgment. Too many people see him as being maybe lighthearted or just brilliantly talented but nice and easy. He's not. When you're playing him, you're going to know it. And even though the cameras and the microphones wouldn't have picked it up, but he'll let you know. So I don't want to judge Mark in the way sometimes the media has. He, he's very strong and very aggressive sports person. That's really who he is. I mean, you don't score 20 test tons mm. uh, just going out there and being casual, that's for sure. Uh, wh- what about you? Are any other teammates you're particularly close to now or any, um, you know, you keep well, in touch with? the Baggy Blues are very close. We've come back together, really driven off the back of all the work the Queensland Bulls have done. The Queensland Bulls have done Bulls incredible masters, job. Yeah, Queensland Bulls Masters have done incredible work up there. And um, I take my hat off. Jimmy Marr and all the boys up there, magnificent. And the Baggy Blues in the last eight years has really got going. So, look, to be really honest, I don't have any sort of individual 
mates. And um, you love seeing them all. When we get together, it's like we've literally, we've just been out of training for three or four months. We're back training together. We'll, we'll catch up and we play games or we, we do uh, baggy blue country trips, try and help young people out there. And, and also we link with the mental health program. So every time you catch up with them, you know, it's just magnificent. Phil Emery and Jack Small and Simon Cadditch and Phil, Phil, um, Phil Marks and all, all the blokes. Yeah, there's no difference, mate. Oh, good. Uh, I sometimes commentate on the New South Wales Sheffield Shield, and I've seen that. Yeah. Some of the baggy blues get together in the bar sometimes and watch the Shield. Well, all the blues, we play a lot of golf out at Twin Creeks, Tubby Taylor and Trevor Bayless, Buzzard, Brad McNamara, Shane Lee, Brett Lee, all of them. So we still catch up a lot. Oh, and good. I think that's a good thing. It was something that didn't used to happen. So it's only in the last eight or nine years. Maybe you've stick to TB for coaching the Poms. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got one story to ask you. Just tell me. I was looking through your stats and I saw this highest first class score, 99. Mm. Sorry to bring it up, but run us through the situation, the pain. What happened? Where was it? So remember how I said I had to go to Tasmania? Yep. Uh, late 89, 90, because Greg Matthews had been dropped from the Australian team and I wouldn't have played shield cricket at all. So I went to Tasmania and played 17 games. And the truth of it is, but, and I've never told Tasmania this, but um, six weeks to go of the season, I knew that my wife, we had a six-month-old baby, uh, my girlfriend at the time. We weren't married at the time, but. Scandal. Yeah. And um, she literally, I knew that we had to go home. Yeah. Um, need family we, we needed family support. We needed a bit of help and family support and, and, and having, you know, a, a chance of moving forward. And um, I didn't tell anyone I was going to do that. She left six weeks earlier saying she had to be with her parents. And I played New South Wales in the last game. New South Wales smashed us. Greg Small, uh, sorry, Jack Small and Michael Bevan got 140 and 160 each. They smashed us. Got to 517, I think, 520 in about one day and maybe about two and a half hours. And I think we were about five for 230. No, five for about 200. And Rod Tucker, the ex-New South Wales player, umpire. played for Tasmania and an international umpire now, he was batting and Phil Alley was bowling, six foot ten Phil Alley. And I went out I could to talk b- about like 90 shield cricket for about four hours. Yeah. So. Well, I went out to bat thinking, wow, this bloke, he's bowling 155 Ks. And I said to Rod, I said, he looks pretty quick out here, what's going on? He said, I'm going for it. I don't care what's going on, I'm going for it. What does that mean? And Rod smashed 16 runs, just slogging. And I tell you what, myself and um, Rod, Rod scored 176, and I ended up getting to 99. And the third new, I think it was the third new ball, third new ball came on, Wayne Holdsworth. Cracker. I grew up with Cracker. And he bowled a really quick 145K delivery, pitched on leg and hit the top of off. I was bowled out for 99. Oh, the best way I can put it is no different than Shane Warne. Everyone seems to remember your 99. If I had got 100, no one would have ever remembered it. So I, I, don't, I love the 99. It's, yeah, it's, it's actually funny. It, it is funny. I mean, at the time you wouldn't have, you know, thought, you know, if you sort of towards the end of your career, you might not think you would need that uh, chance. But um, Well, that was uh, 1991. I thought, geez, I, got another, I played for another nine years. I didn't score 100. Yeah, so you pulled up stumps in, what, 2000? And I wonder if Cracker stepped over the line like Vittori did for Warney. Have you seen that footage? Yeah, I did, yeah. Vittori about a foot over the line. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> I was watching that with the old team manager, Ian McDonald. Did you ever yeah, go on tour with him? He's a good family friend of ours, and we Great were watching fella. it. Terrific. Rest in peace. And yeah, we were watching that together, and he was so upset that Warney didn't get the time yeah, that day. Yeah. So, yeah, 2000, you retire from cricket. Was it mm. sort of you just felt that's it, time's up? No. I um, I had had a shoulder issue um, and had an operation, um, the 99-2000 winter. Or the, the the break of two th- the winter of two thousand, and I had to get going again. But during that time, I had a rock band called Six and Out, and we had just recorded well, an just album. Just any rock band. Mm. Myself, Brett Lee, Brad McNamara, Shane Lee, Richard Cheekwe, and uh, we recorded an album with Garth Porter from Sherbet. We were leading up to the season, and we had a an album launch, and I had the album launch booked in for the Monday, and I had a job interview booked in for the Wednesday. And the Thursday before that game, uh, that Monday, Wednesday, I'm talking about Cricket New South Wales ring and say, you're in the second 11 team to play in barrel next Monday to Thursday. I thought, I can't do that. I've got an album launch and I've got a job interview and I'm at an age where I need to do these things. Anyway, I said, no, I can't play the second 11 game. And um, what happened was um, I got to training a week later as the Tuesday. And I went in and Paddy Farhart, the physio, goes, better go and see. Because the boys were just walking out fielding. We're getting warmed up. And he said, you better go and see Brian Hughes, the CEO. I went, oh, really? What about? He goes, you've got to go and see him. And I walked upstairs and saw him and he said, um, look, Gavin with, or Robbo, with regard to, you know, missing last week, um, that's, that's the end. I went, what do you mean? He goes, uh, sorry, mate, you've got to, you know, you've got to be available. And he so we've decided that's that's going to be the end. So I went. So what happens now? Well, it's the end. You've you just you go home, and it's a weird thing, you know. Uh, I, I I don't have any problem with it because uh, in in definitely in starting the baggy blues and speaking to older players, sixty, seventy, eighty percent of players leave the game at the highest level the non-perfect way. You just get sacked. That's just life. It's the way the game was. And I, I remember walking downstairs and grabbing my kit bag, putting it over my shoulder, and I had to walk along the nets while the players were fielding. And a few of the players going, Robbo, what are you doing? And I, I said, I can't, can't talk. And I, I just walked out, got in the car and drove home. And, you know, that was it. I didn't return, and that's the way it ended. I, I'm okay with that. i tell you why, because down the track, it really, that's where... Myself and Mike Whitney were talking one night after I was doing Sky News Sports Report back in 2012. And we spoke from 11 o'clock at night till quarter past one. And I said, I've got to go to bed with God, we could talk for hours. And he said, and we both agreed, geez, we miss each other. We miss our old mates. And what we did was we decided two days later, let's ring around and let's catch up at a pub. 30 new, old New South Wales players caught up at a pub three weeks later on a Thursday night. We spent five hours. It was the best time. And I realised that many of us had left the game in indifferent ways, but just getting back together. And that's really how the Baggy Blues started. So I, I say, again, a negative, you can call it a negative, but I see it as a, a positive. Look, you know, you're never on your own when it goes bad. You're not the only person that it's ever happened to. So just find a way to speak to other people, share, and then move on because otherwise you can make too much of stuff. 
Yeah. And it can really destroy you. So you sometimes let go and move on. Did you have a good relationship with that guy, Brian Hughes, that sacked you? Yeah, I'd, I'd known Brian my entire career. He was always around. He was the, the one of the assistant CEO to... Yeah, right. How old were you when, when the, you got sacked? Uh, 30, what was I? I'm just trying to think. I think I was 35. Yeah, 35, 36. Coming to 35 the would have been, yeah. I guess everything you'd been through in the 10 years before mm. is not a big setback. Everyone, you know, no. Everyone gets sacked. You've been in the workforce. You know how it is. Uh, I just spent, I spent three or four weeks sitting around and ended up going to just, again, say yes to Greg Page, who was from the Wiggles. And we started the cricketcoach.com uh, coaching tool, which uh, took about a year. We didn't continue on with it, but it was re- it was ahead of, way ahead of its time. Yeah, they're all big, big yeah. fashion now. Lynn and all them have got them. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much and come, for coming in and talking about your career. It's been amazing. Um, I just sort of want to finish on the state of cricket in Australia now and a bit about your radio career. Firstly, do, do you think they sort of give out Aussie caps now a little bit too easy. Oh, it's a different game. I mean, the only way you got picked for Australia was by putting a weight of work on board on the draw, drawing board, where you know you'd you'd put seasons together of performance and success. I was that's where I I think I was lucky. I mean, I I first got picked for Australia off the back of two really good years, but I, the, the, when I came back three years later, I was sort of picked as Yep, having been there before, but, you know, I think today you can just get picked on talent or perception of talent. I mean, that's okay, but in the end, uh, it's like any business. If you don't own the framework of your business, are you going to be able to create the output? If you don't own your batting or your bowling and and understanding what it is you do, can you do that? go and do that if you're playing India or England? And so, yeah, I think, you know, Sometimes the older version is is something that we shouldn't forget. But I think it's very difficult with the pace of the game, or sorry, with the amount of content of games that are being played. Players go from team to team to team to just being played. And I spoke to a player three or four weeks ago, and he made a comment that really stopped me and a few of us older blokes in our tracks. He said, in the end, it's, you know, we want to play, but it's just a job. It's a job. Training's a job. The next game you get, it's a job. And that shocked a lot of the older players. So maybe today cricket is just a job. And when we played, it wasn't a job. No, because you weren't getting, hardly getting paid. That's why it wasn't a job back then. I think the Shield, well, you can tell me, the Shield contracts were like, what, 10, 20 grand a year back then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah 14. I think 1,400 a game was a, was a really big pay. Wow. And then I think it went to... 1,500 or 1,600 over the years. but yeah. You'd have been a handy T20 cricketer. That's um, just <laughs> missed that. You'd have been a... Imagine Richard Cheekway. He would have been oh. a million dollars a year. Yeah. And he would have been amazing. And so now you're on the radio every day in Sydney, 2SM, what, 1269? Yeah, Talking right? Sport. We cover... Talking Sport, uh, 90, 3 to 6. 3 to 6. We cover 94% of New South Wales and all of South East Queensland. So it's been... Been a great eighteen years of and my hopefully life. Hopefully, you so. get it podcasted so some of those people can listen to it. They're yeah. listening to this. Yeah, myself oh. and Graham Hughes, who also played cricket for New South Wales. So. Julian, didn't he play? He played both. Played. He was the last footy, last person to play. Actually, yeah. theoretically, he's not the last person to play rugby league for New South Wales and cricket for New South Wales. Andrew Johns. No one gets that answer. No yeah. one gets that answer. Because Andrew Johns played one T twenty <laughs> game. 
<laughs> big mistake out at Homebush <laughs> that night. Um, and they're still bitching about that, um, yeah. some of the players. But, but you know, I'm fascinated. You know, I podcast, I love this sort of thing. What, what do you think makes a kind of – what are you trying to do on Talking Sport to make it engaging for the listener? My primary thing is to, is to give a stuff about the listener. Uh, so I think it's – I've been sort of told that I'm, I'm completely reversed. So I'm interested in what they think because in the end they are the eyeballs of the game and whatever game it is. So they are – take them away – and then there is no money in the game. Their eyeballs, pay TV, et cetera, radio, whatever, um, they're the ones that drive the game forward to where it is now. So we decided 18 years ago, let's open it up and let's not just get on there and, and tell everybody about the rugby league, the union, the baseball, the netball, the AFL, the, you know, the soccer, and just keep telling them our thoughts. Give them a rough framework of what's going on today but be interested in what their ideas and what their problems are or issues are. And anybody can come on as long as they talk sport and we will listen to their issues or their thoughts. Do you take o- a lot of calls? Oh, well, I get to work. Well, since I've been sick, I'll, I'll, I, I get there about 2.30 sometimes. But we, we, we've got 150 emails and calls a day. We never get through them all, but we go through them and collect them and but people have the right of opinion. We, we're really searching back to not lose Australia's democracy and people's opinion is fine. If they're rude, bang, they'll get dumped if they say the, the wrong words. But we don't say, listen, mate, you're an idiot, get lost, or you're a nuffy, or we don't bag people. And to be really honest, it has been one of the biggest flukes. And we, we, we are the only show like it. But, like, I didn't know, because we're not in the ratings, because... Uh, we've never really been in part of the ratings. But you know that you're in the ratings when you get sick, when all of a sudden you just get a ridiculous amount of emails coming down your road where you're answering emails for 10 months. So, And if you go on the street, people ask how you're going. That's when you know, oh, my God, maybe people do listen to us. We've got a pretty big audience. We've worked that out now. And I think the other thing is our big thing is people work their butt off from 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning normally work their butt off till 3, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. When they're driving home or in the train or on the bus, they want to laugh. Bit of a yarn about sport. Mm. So I don't mind what they laugh about, anything, and I don't care. They're laughing at you? No, no worries at all. And to, to take off uh, one of our callers the other day, a lovely lady, she came on and she said, uh, now, boys, I only want to talk to Graham because Gavin – let me tell you, you are a raving lunatic. <laughs> so I would love that. Yeah, and we keep playing that. We keep uh, that's mm. on one of our buttons when something comes up funny. So yeah, you can't take yourself too seriously, but give people some enjoyment and some entertainment in the afternoon on the way home after a, a tough day. I mean, yeah, I've loved all your media work, and I'm, I'm not just saying that because you're here, but all the the, the cricket. I, mean, I know you've commentated on the radio a lot, the cricket, and I've always enjoyed it. Are you a sport nuffy then? Because if you're doing a sport show, you must be. TV gets home and the missus is like, oh, no, not another game of footy. Or- uh, I've, I've been to the priest um, down the road. We were walking past six or seven years ago and grabbed a coffee and were walking past the priest. And I said, excuse me, sir, do you have a minute? Yes, how can I help you? I said, look, me and my wife have been together for 30 years, but I'm struggling with the remote control. And 
she likes to watch Bold and the Beautiful, but I've got to watch the cricket or the rugby league or the union or the soccer. Can you help me? And he said, just remember what we say, son, in my job, for better or for worse. And that made me laugh. <laughs> I looked at her. I said, is, is that okay? She didn't really laugh. <laughs> they're, they're the funny things. You, you sorted that out now? You've got two TVs got, or something? got two TVs. And, it's the uh, best way. Yeah, that's, that's the way it goes. You gotta, you gotta, when you're interested in stuff, you've got to watch it. I, I do love the sport. It's magnificent. Mm. So what's next for Gavin Roberts and what's the plan? Uh, I'd love the Giants to win and yep. um, I still do little bits and pieces at the radio. Um, but we have a true sports show that's really ready to roll and that's going to go out next year in 20. We'll really get going in 2022, but we're the only show like it. And it's not a radio or TV show. We're actually a live speaking and live music show with myself, uh, Eric Groth, Mike Whitney, Mark Spud Carroll, Richard Cheekwee, wow. and the legend that started Noiseworks, the great Steve Balby. We're a, we're a band, but we go on and we tell our stories. We talk and guest speak for 80 minutes, you know, and, and we you, tell. You and we could capture that room easily. Well, we talk cricket stories, rugby league stories, and some of the Noiseworks stories are amazing. Then we have a 10-minute break, and we've done a couple of shows to big crowds and They'll go get a drink, come back, and we put on a live 90-minute live rock show. And it's uh, three hours of fun that hasn't ever been done before. So we're, we're going to do at least 15 shows next year. But that's all we'll be able to do, 15 shows, but 15 big shows. But oh. it'll be a lot of fun, you know. And Let us know when that's happening. Yeah, we'll, we'll plug it on the podcast because uh, yeah. that's uh, our listeners' dreams, those sort of nights. Yeah, we'll for sure. Especially after lockdown. Well, we're going to try and get out and about right through sort of Sydney and New South Wales and and a bit of southeast Queensland, so we'll get there. Brilliant. Well, Gavin, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. Great to see you up and Cheers. about, and, um, you know, hope to uh, catch up with you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this edition of Mena's Masterclass. Next episode, it could be Moby Dick himself. Podcast Network. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24 7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.